Okay, so today's reading comes from Psalms 77. For the director of music, for Jedithan of Asaph of Psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What, what God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were, depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Through your footprints were not, sorry, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Uh, it's good to be here with you again. Uh, and for the uh, opportunity for me to share God's word with you. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, may the Holy Spirit open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, so that we may know you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more closely day by day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Have we got the quote, the PowerPoint? But that's okay. You'll just have to listen to me then. That's all right. Uh, in his letter to Marcellinus on the interpretation of the Psalms, the fourth century church father Athanasius wrote this. Let whoever reads this book of Psalms take the things in it quite simply as God inspired. And let each select from it, as from the fruits of a garden, those things of which he, him, he sees himself in need. For I think that in the words of this book, all human life is covered with all its states and thoughts, and that nothing further can be found in man. 
For no matter what you seek, whether it be repentance and confession or help in trouble and temptation or under persecution, whether you have been set free from the plots and snares or on the contrary, are sad for any reason or whether seeing yourself progressing and your enemy cast down, you want to praise and thank and bless the Lord. Each of these things, the divine psalms, show you how to do. And in every case, the words you want are written down for you. And you can say them as your own. Is it any wonder then that the book of Psalms has been a favourite of Christians for over 2,000 years. Some time ago, I preached to you on Psalm 46, a psalm of trust, where the psalmist confidently declared God to be his refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But as we've read, Psalm 77 is a psalm of a different stripe. It's a psalm of lament. As John mentioned, of the 150 psalms, about 60 of them are psalms of lament, outnumbering every other kind of psalm. That statistic alone tells us that life is full of trouble and sorrow. What is a psalm of lament? One Christian writer defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That's what a psalm of lament is, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Psalm 77 falls exactly within that description. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. The psalm falls neatly into two halves. Verses 1 to 10 is the lament, while verses 11 to 20 is a, heart, is a hymn of praise. One writer has observed in the lament section of Psalm 77, the psalmist reveals a tension between his expectations of God's presence and his experience of God's absence. We will see that as we look more closely at Psalm 77. The psalmist had an expectation of God's presence, but his experience was that of God's absence. Firstly, then, we see the psalmist persists in prayer in his deep distress in verses 1 and 2. We see that from the very outset, the distress of the psalmist. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. This is not silent prayer, but the outcry of someone in desperate circumstances. We know the psalmist is in distress because he tells us so in verse 2, although we have no idea what the nature of the distress was. He was persistent in prayer. He sought the Lord. In your English Bible, the word Lord in the Old Testament can appear either as all capitals, L-O-R-D, to signify the Hebrew Yahweh, 
or it can appear with only a capital L. And the other three letters are all in lowercase. Lord, to signify the Hebrew word Adonai. It's the Hebrew word Adonai in verse 2. The psalmist sought Adonai, the Lord, the one who has authority over all things as master of the universe. He not only prayed in the day of trouble, but he continued in prayer at night. He stretched out untiring hands at night. He kept praying. Then we might expect him to say, and then God comforted me. Then I was able to relax and rest. But no, his untiring prayer did not bring him the comfort he so desperately wanted. He refused to be comforted, verse 2. So there you have it. The psalmist prayed persistently in his distress, day and night, but there was no relief. He refused to be comforted. Have you ever experienced that? You pray and pray, but there's no relief from your distress, no comfort, no peace. God seems unresponsive to your prayers. Or God seems, as C.S. Lewis puts it, so very absent a help in time of trouble. And it didn't get any better for the psalmist in verses 3 and 4. It got worse. He remembered God and he groaned, verse 3. The Hebrew word translated groan in verse 3 is the same word we find in Psalm 46, verses 3 and 6, where the psalmist spoke respectively of waters that roar and the nations in uproar. So here in Psalm 77, verse 3, the psalmist's remembrance of God brought him inner turmoil, not comfort. He not only remembered God, he also meditated presumably on God in the hope that it would restore him. But it didn't. Instead, he grew faint within him. Added to that, the psalmist couldn't sleep and he blamed God for his sleeplessness. Verse 4, you kept my eyes from closing. Moreover, the psalmist was so troubled, he could not speak. The psalmist's speechlessness in verse 4 stands in stark contrast to his crying out aloud in verse 1. That's reality, isn't it? There are times in our distress when we cry out loudly to God, and there are times when we're utterly speechless. Words fail us. We don't know what to pray. But unlike Old Testament believers, New Testament Christians like us have the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. 
The psalmist then reflected on the past in verse 5. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago, but that didn't help either. In verse 6, he remembered his songs in the night. Says one commentator, the song sung at night used to be of comfort as God's people renewed their loyalty to the God who is mighty to deliver. But the hymns of night seem to work no longer. The phrases at night in verses verse two and in and in the night in verse six add weight to the psalmist's anxiety. Night is a symbol of internal unrest, says another commentator. The seemingly futile search for a hidden God. The insomniac is restless and frets over God's absence in silence. Troubling questions aggravate the condition. Mark Talbot is a Christian academic and writer. He broke his back in an accident when he was 17. His injury was so bad he had to learn to walk again. He did, but only with the help of a walking stick. In his 60s, he broke his hip and became wheelchair-bound. Sometimes he has sleep-robbing leg spasms. Concerning his suffering for over 50 years, he wrote this. I know what it means to have prayed desperately for God to change some of the more distressing aspects of my life. I have had seasons of profoundly disorienting perplexity when night after night sleep fled from me because I was utterly unable to understand how God in his goodness could have been playing any part in what was happening to me. That brings us to our next point, that in times of distress, questions of doubt can arise. We see that in verses 7 to 9 when the psalmist asks, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? When we're in an anxious or agitated state, questions can flood into our minds. Here in verses 7 to 9, there are six questions And each raises doubts about the attitude of God towards the psalmist. In particular, verses 8 and 9 appear to challenge the traditional Israelite understanding of God's character in the creed-like statement in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Thus, Psalm 77 verses 8 and 9 act as a kind of commentary on Exodus 34 verse 6 by questioning each aspect of the creedal statement. As one commentator wrote, 
These charges are serious and bold. But God does not strike the psalmist dead for his impudence. The very presence of this prayer in the Psalms make it clear that God invites his his people's honest and courageous prayers. Isn't that an encouragement to us? That we can be honest and open with God. Taken together, these questions in verses 7 to 9 ask, has God changed? That's a conclusion the psalmist confronts according to an alternative translation of verse 10, which is a very difficult verse to translate. This alternative translation you'll find in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and other versions as well. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. As a result of these questions in verses 7 to 9, the psalmist was grieved by the idea that God had changed. The divine title Most High in verse 10 pictures God as the exalted ruler of the universe who, who vindicates the innocent and judges the wicked. The reference to God's right hand signifies power and might to deliver his people from distress, as he had on many occasions in Israel's history. But it's clear from verse 10 that the most high's right hand had not delivered the psalms from his distress. He felt God had abandoned him. He perceived God was inactive. Why was that? Had God changed? Had God lost his power to deliver? Or had God's attitude to the psalmist changed so that he was unwilling to lift a finger to help him? Either way, verse 10 ends the lament section with a summary of the psalmist's predicament that God had changed. His experience of God's absence conflicted with his expectation of God's presence. He believed that God had not heard him, that God's promise and unfailing love had failed, and that he no longer showed mercy, favour and compassion. But then, in verse 11, there's a sudden turnaround in, as the psalmist remembers God's miracles in the past. And the rest of the psalm turns into a hymn of praise. As one writer has noted, faithful lamenting is grounded on remembering what God has always done. Faithful lamenting is grounded on remembering what God has always done. Why the different outcome of the psalmist remembering here in verse 11? After all, didn't he remember God and groan in verse 3? Didn't the psalmist remember his songs in the night but found no comfort in verse 6? So why the difference now in verse 11? The difference is that here in verse 11, his attention focused carefully 
on God's miraculous rescues of Israel in the past. Those are what he concentrated on and meditated on. It's noteworthy that the word translated muse in verses 3 and 6 and meditate in verse 12 is the same Hebrew word. In verses 3 and 6, the psalmist's meditation brought no positive change to his self-focus. But his resolve to meditate in verse 12 on all God's works shifts his attention from self to God. Instead of I and my, the dominate, verses 1 to 10, we see you and your in the second half of the psalm. What a contrast between the two halves of this psalm. The first half is full of despair and doubt. The second half is full of praise, giving rise to hope and trust. No longer did the psalmist see God as the source of his trouble, but as the one who works miracles and was therefore worthy of praise as the incomparably great God of the Israelites. Verse 13. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? The holiness of God here does not refer to his moral purity. Rather, it refers to his transcendent holiness. It's what makes God God. We are his creatures. He is other. His holiness exalts him above all his creatures in infinite majesty. This holiness of God makes him incomparable. There is none like him. But while the psalmist speaks about God's wonders of the past, wonders of the past he describes God as the God who performs miracles in verse 14. The psalmist uses a present tense verb. God is still the God who performs miracles in the present, not just the past. Yes, God redeemed his people in the past, as the psalmist declares in verse 15. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. That's a reference to the Israelites' rescue from Egypt by the mighty hand of God as is clear from what follows. The psalmist even draws on language from the Song of Moses, uh, which we find in Exodus uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 18, in this hymn of praise section of the psalm. I'd encourage you to go and read Exodus 15 later. In verses 16 to 20, the psalmist concentrates his attention on the miraculous crossing by the Israelites, through the God-parted waters of the Red Sea and the destruction of the pursuing Egyptian army when the waters came together again. The psalmist uses vivid language as he describes God's miraculous victory at the Red Sea. It is though the psalmist were present as an eyewitness to God's power over the foaming waters and the sea. The psalmist also injects the fearful sights and sounds of Mount Sinai in verses 17 and 18 
that spoke of God's awesome presence to home, to press home the point of God's powerful salvation of his people. Just as God's way is one of holiness in verse 13, so also in verse 19, God's way was also in the sea to rescue his people. But notice, his footsteps were unseen. God passed through the mighty waters, yet no one could later find a trace of his footprints there. Verse 19 supports the idea God delivers his people without any visible evidence of his presence. That idea is echoed in the words of a hymn by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. The idea that God delivers his people without any visible evidence of his presence surely was important to the psalmist since his suffering arose from his perceived absence of God. The psalm ends in verse 20 by relating how God led and guided the people he had redeemed. As one commentator has noted, there's no anticlimax, but an encouragement to believers that as God acted powerfully against Israel's foes and shepherded his people through human agents like Moses and Aaron, so God could do the same in the particular crisis the psalmist is facing. That being said, it's clear that the psalmist has not been delivered from his trouble. Nor has he received a direct answer from God, and he has not had his problems removed. What has happened since the beginning of the psalm is that the psalmist has moved from doubt to hope and trust through his recalling and pondering God's miraculous salvation of the Israelites at the Red Sea. In doing that, the psalmist found confidence for the present and hope for the future. Reading this psalm, we Christians have even more reason to look to God's past acts as we steer through the struggles of life. We live in the period after the coming of Christ, whose great redemptive acts, which the Exodus foreshadowed, are recorded for us in the Gospels. Therefore, let us habitually look at the past, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, especially in the midst of our difficulties, and find confidence for the present, and hope for the future. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, as we struggle through the muck of life and in our distress we perceive you to be absent and even uncaring, may your Holy Spirit take our hearts and minds back to the cross that we might remember that because you have loved us with an everlasting love,
You sent your son Jesus into our world to die the death that we deserve and so rescue us from our sin. When we do not feel the sense of your comforting presence, may your Holy Spirit help us to remember your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what our circumstances are, so that we may confidently trust in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, it seems like we've just got one uh, question on uh, Padlet. So it says, why does God not stop bad things from happening to his people? I think there'd be many books written on that question. <laughs> um, I, I, all I can say is... <clears throat> I don't have the answer to that, except to say that our God is good. And we, you know, you think of Job. I think that was a question he was asking, you know, why did this happen to me? Because God himself declared that he was blame. There was no one like him. He was blameless. And yet he endured that. I think we just have to trust the infinite wisdom of God in, if I can put it like this, in dealing with the hands that we're, you know, using a card term, dealing with the hands that we're dealt with in life. Um, and that's, that's um, that Mark Talbot quote that I um, mentioned earlier, that's a question he was grappling with. You know, what was the... You know, he was unable to understand what role God played in the part of his son 50 years of suffering. Yeah. So I know it's probably a very difficult answer. That's fair enough. It is time. Well, we've got another one bit. Um, uh, yeah. How do we lament our oh, communal or is it an individual? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks for that. Because you'll find in the book of Psalms there are communal laments as well as individual laments. And the reason I chose that last song is because often in church, worship time, you don't hear songs of lament. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when life really sucks and we don't like feel like being in church. Our heart isn't in that space. We're grieving on the inside and you know, in certain, certain in a lot of churches, you'll find you know very upbeat, uh, worshipful songs, and they're appropriate. I'm not dissing those, but the reality is, there are times we need songs like that because that's where we're at in life. And someone did a uh, survey looking through uh, a, a hymnal or something, and they found there were only about three percent of songs in the worship book that they particularly use that actually had songs of lament. And yet the Psalms, about 60 out of 150, you know, that's close to 40%. That tells you a lot about what God has provided for us because he knows there are occasions in life when things are really tough 
and he gives us the words to pray. I mentioned before about feeling speechless and about the, how the Holy Spirit helps us with groans because there are times like that. But we mustn't neglect the prayer book of the Bible where God actually gives us the words that actually resonate with what we're going through. So, you know, if I'm banging on a bit about the Psalms, that's the reason why, because, you know, life isn't easy. Life, we're called as Christians to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We can't expect a life of ease and prosperity. So, yes, communal laments. Um, I can't remember. I think Psalm 44 might be a communal lament. Um, I can provide details later to John. Um, but, yes, there are communal laments. Um, I think of Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, when we sat down. There we went. So Psalm 137 resonates with that. That's a communion. Yeah. Um, I don't know. If, I don't think I have any more questions. Um, but no, thanks for your time and uh, thanks for your answers. Okay.